Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. The question this time is, what are the key takeaways around code of conduct development from the new DOJ guidance? And this comes out of a couple of presentations I've done recently as we've been parsing through and learning more about the guidance that came out in February. And I think there are three key things to keep in mind. And nothing about this is necessarily new for those of you who've had an organized process for your code of conduct review and development over the last five to 10 years. But I think it's new to see it in black and white. And it certainly would be hard now if you were trying to defend your code of conduct and the development of your code of conduct if you hadn't considered some of these items. The first is probably the most important one, and I think one that is most overlooked by many organizations, particularly organizations that do this entirely internally, and that's involving your team. Code of conduct development is a team process. I recently had a conversation with a compliance officer who is a very long-tenured, very well-respected and 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 duly deserved respect, by the way. And she was talking about her process for reviewing her code of conduct. And when she started talking about her process, which is an annual process, it involved running it through a cadre of subject matter experts, the head auditor, some other members of the legal team. And that was it. But that's pretty consistent with what I have heard many compliance officers say for many years now. Well, that just is not going to fly anymore, folks. If you read the new guidance, there's a couple of things that I'd like to point out to you. From the design to the implementation to the assessment to the review and this ongoing process for code of conduct development, there is now a clear expectation that the team is going to be involved, that members of your organization far and wide, operational members of your team, are going to be involved. Specifically, the guidance talks about who's involved in the design and development. So at the very beginning, when you're planning the process, when you're, when you're figuring out what resources you're going to bring to bear, when you're budgeting, when you're putting together the timeline, there's an expectation that you're going to have multiple members of the organization involved. There is a specific question, a specific call out in the guidance under design process asking if, quote, business units slash divisions have been consulted prior to the rollout of policies or procedures or code of conduct. And that's pretty explicit, business units slash divisions. They're talking about operational members of your organization. So if you haven't in the past in your process included operational management in the design, in the thought processes behind your code of conduct development, it's pretty clear that you're going to need to do that in the future. The other thing that the guidance specifically calls out when you're talking about involving your team is providing resources to what they call gatekeepers for people who are ultimately going to be responsible for making sure that policies, codes, other written standards are being implemented properly. And so that's going to be a wide swath of management, not just people in compliance, not just HR, but operational managers have that responsibility as well. So uh, if you just take time, sit down and read 
just the section that talks about written standards, or as they couch in this particular document, policies and procedures, it's pretty clear that teamwork is very clearly an important goal. So that's the first one. The second is plan and planning. Most of the discussion in this document is around design and implementation. There is an expectation that you're going to have a methodology. There's an expectation that you're going to have a plan, that this is not going to be a project that is first not undertaken by just one person, by a team, but also a project with clear goals and a clear plan and methodology behind it. There are a couple of questions throughout this section and all all other parts of the guidance around process. And specifically, when they're talking about written standards, they say, what has been the company's process for designing and implementing new policies and procedures. So there's going to be an inquiry into what you've done. So what do you need to do? You need to have a plan, and you need to document that plan. That's going to be really key. If you don't have a documented plan, if you don't have a consistent plan, you maybe you review the code on an ad hoc basis whenever something comes up that uh, you or the subject matter experts feel uh, merits an update, then that's when you reapproach the code of conduct. I think that at a minimum, you at least need to document what where the thresholds are for you to conduct such a review. You need to have some document out there, some process, some methodology that you can defend and that you thought about defending so that uh, you can show that there is some design to the code of conduct or, or written standard process at your organization. And then the third thing that I think is pretty clearly ringing throughout the new guidance And again, not new, but perhaps new for some that have not paid as close attention to to guidance from the department and other regulators in the last few years, is the notion of assessing your policies, assessing your written standards, your code of conduct. There's, again, plenty of guidance within the document on that. And the good thing about this guidance is you don't have to read between the lines. It's pretty explicit. Here's a quote. How has the company assessed whether these policies and procedures have been effectively implemented? You can't get any more black and white than that. So I think the expectation from a prosecutor, uh, either an assistant U.S. attorney or a trial attorney from the Department of Justice that's reviewing the sufficiency of your program and looking at your code of conduct process, they're going to want to see how you went about assessing the effectiveness of your code, what kind of internal measurements you've undertaken to find out how effectively the messaging in the code has been implemented. What are the perceptions around the code? What are the perceptions around the resources that the code talks about? What's the knowledge base around the content of the code internally? So any internal benchmarking you have, but also external benchmarking. When you're reviewing your code or when you put your code together, did you look at uh, 20 or 25 other codes of conduct? You probably did, but did you document that process? Can you show the hard work that went into your prior review that led you to the the end result, the project that you ended up with. So assessment is is the third key here that uh, really, I think, shows up very clearly when you review this new guidance. So if you hadn't thought about it before, if you hadn't thought about your process, if you hadn't thought about how you approach, again, not just code of conduct, frankly, but any written standards, think about these three things. Think about how you would defend your process uh, through through the prism of those, at least those three items. And there's more in there. If you haven't read it already, again, I can't encourage you enough to do that. And in the show notes, there's going to be a link to the new guidance. But I just wanted to spend a little bit of time just talking about that very specific thing, about these 
again, not new, but maybe new to some ideas because uh, I've been speaking on it pretty regularly here in the last few weeks, and there's been a lot of questions about it. And I know from personal experience that, you know, really strong programs, people that have very mature programs and really think hard about their process and really think hard about code of conduct, you know, for instance, don't really involve a broad cross-functional operational team when they go through this process because it's, it takes some planning and it takes some, some thought and it's outside the comfort zone for some programs as well because it's new and it's, it's something you haven't done before, but it's, it's worth considering. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to Compliance Beat. Please do contact us if you have issues, questions that you would like us to address on the podcast. We are always looking for those ideas. We sure appreciate you listening and participating. The upshot this time is, while there's a lot of helpful guidance in the new DOJ guidance that came out in February around code of conduct and written standards and a lot of other things, three things to keep in mind when you're planning your code of conduct development or review or renewal is number one, involving your team. Number two, having a clear documented plan and methodology. And number three, have a process in place for assessing the effectiveness of your code of conduct. Allison Taylor is a director for business and social responsibility, a global nonprofit which works with companies to develop sustainable business strategies. And you can find them at bsr.org. She leads BSR's sustainable management practice and focuses on approaches to sustainability through risk management, strategy, stakeholder engagement, transparency, ethics and governance, and organizational change. Previously, Allison was Senior Managing Director at Control Risks, where she helped companies operate with integrity, particularly in high-risk environments. She also worked at Transparency International, Price Waterhouse Coopers, and IHS Global Insights. She speaks and writes regularly on risk and organizational culture. She's a board member of the Ethics Organization Center for Business and Ethics and Corporate Governance, and she's also an adjunct professor at Fordham Law School. She also recently authored The Five Levels of an Ethical Culture, a report which can be found at BSR's website and is a very engaging read that I encourage you all to check out. Welcome, Allison. Hi, Eric. Thanks very much for having me. One of the five levels of culture you detail in your paper is how personal and organizational intersect. And your research notes that the influence of rewards or incentives, both direct incentives or the outcomes from pressures to perform. What reverberates in my mind recently is the recent Wells Fargo case where we, I think, clearly saw the influence of perverse incentives. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of rewards or incentives in, in culture and perhaps describe a more, a more positive example to contrast the negative, negative ones that we often see? Yeah, absolutely. I think probably of all the factors driving ethical culture that I mention in this paper, incentives and reward systems is probably the single most important. It is quite interesting, I think, that the compliance field has over the past few years started discussing the importance of incentives a lot more and how they might support or undermine compliance and ethics objectives. 
but actually examples of really meaningful change are interestingly still relatively thin on the ground. And as I'm sure you found as well, when you talk to companies privately, they will very often say, you know, we would love to think about incentives in a different way, but we are concerned about losing business to competitors or this is the way that everybody else in this industry or sector does it. So I think this is the next frontier of ethical management. And I think there is a huge opportunity for market moving companies to make a difference. And I think for those, if those leading companies do, then very often it means that the rest of the sector then has to follow on. It means that investors start asking questions of everybody else in the sector. And it really just takes uh, one company to move and the floor can be raised. So to give you a very, very concrete example, GSK, after their very well-documented problems in China, took a number of very radical moves that are are unique in the pharmaceutical sector in terms of how their sales team's performance are measured and incentivized. So looking at behavioral aspects and product knowledge, as well as meeting targets. They've also stopped paying doctors to speak at their conferences. So how they incentivize the wider ecosystem has also changed. And I think that has Uh immediately raised questions for the rest of the sector in terms of these practices. And I think it will, you know, ultimately, have a really, really significant effect. So that's a very concrete example. There are others, I think, from the financial sector. And I would direct your readers who are interested in in learning more about how very detailed considerations of incentives can help undermine or support ethical culture to look at the paper from Transparency International UK. I think it came out late last year. It's called Incentivizing Ethics. It has a lot of very detailed and useful discussion about formal and informal incentives and unintended consequences and the way in which companies, even with the best intentions, can inadvertently be putting their employees in a situation either where they're incentivizing bad behavior or they are incentivizing things that contradict each other. And I think it's got a lot of useful tips in there. I think you're right from my experience too, is that uh, this is an area where organizations sort of struggle one question I, I would pose to you out of curiosity, and this comes from my, my background. When I came out of the Sentencing Commission, one of the things that was often complained to by the public when, when we were looking at the organizational sentencing guidelines is that there's no guidance at all about what incentives might mean within the context of an effective program as described in the sentencing guidelines. It, it uses the term, it says incentives, but it doesn't give any kind of guidance uh, around that. One of the things that had been suggested over time is that perhaps the commission ought to go back and provide an application note or some some examples, some broad examples that might cause its own <laughs> potential issues. But I'm curious as to whether you think m- maybe part of the problem is there's not a lot of guidance out there. Um, yeah, I think that I think that's right. I think you know one of the issues is this hasn't been in the remit of a traditional compliance program. Incentives are usually set by a combination of HR and the senior leadership team, and maybe compliance doesn't tend to traditionally have that much input in 
how incentives should be set and measured, they're seen as more strategic issues and something obviously compliance people say all the time is that they would like more of a, a seat at the table on strategy. So I think more guidance would be helpful with the understanding that this is not a one-size-fits-all approach and it's really looking at the relationship between the various formal and informal incentives that an organization puts together that is the, is the sweet spot for getting this right. But, you know, even thinking about something like the unintended consequences of, of variable bonuses, I mean, on the uh-huh. one hand, they can, push, they can push people to breaching ethical codes of conduct in order to achieve sales. Equally, then, if people don't get the bonuses that they deserve, that may be a very powerful disincentive and it may cause people to defraud the company. So I think we need to have a a lot more case studies, a lot more practice notes, and a lot more open discussion about what the appropriate role is for the compliance team in helping senior leadership and HR make decisions in this space. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that, that the, the more examples there are, and particularly the more examples there are within certain industries, the, the, those best practices then get adopted. And that's probably the best way to move forward. I have the, I always am hopeful that my, my colleagues in, at my former organization at the Sentencing Commission will re-examine the sentencing guidelines for organizations and, and, and provide some guidance on this and other issues. But they're a little bit like the Sphinx. They don't really... <laughs> <laughs> they don't really, they don't really move uh, very, very frequently on on the organizational guidelines, which is, I think, overall a good thing, right? Because it's not something that is constantly being reengineered. The second area that you have researched and detailed in your report is the interpersonal aspect, uh, looking at the influence and relative power uh, between leaders and their employees and other stakeholders. Can you speak a little bit about how important the balance is for a positive culture between the leaders of the organization and and employees and rank and file and and stakeholders? And maybe give us some examples about how leaders with the support of their organizations can cultivate good results for culture here. Sure, absolutely. I feel like this is, uh, on top of incentive, the second area where there's no shortage of discussion. Uh, Tone at the top obviously is a core aspect of FCPA compliance programs, but despite this being endlessly discussed, we're still seeing a quite remarkable number of examples where I'm sure that everybody listening can think of them, but VW and Wells Fargo being very obvious ones where there has been a problem and the leadership of the organization immediately sort of steps into the public domain, making some version of the rogue employee argument that this was just a small proportion of employees and it doesn't reflect the overall culture and also I as a leader am not responsible. So this is still the kind of initial play but response given the the public reaction to all those responses. Those leaders have since corrected this, but a lot of this really boils down to leaders being subject to the same rules and regulations and standards as the rest of the organization. And I think, unfortunately, what we're still seeing is a lot of leadership impunity. So we need to see leaders punished and removed if they do something wrong. We need employees to see that, you know, leaders are not um, immune from the same rules that apply to everybody else. 
But I think also we need leaders to take a slightly less literal interpretation of what it means for them to be aware and accountable for unethical behavior. And what I mean there specifically is the leader does not need to have been specifically aware of the unethical conduct. The leader does not need to have seen the bribe take place. The leader does not need to have signed off on it personally to be responsible for the norms and processes and culture in the organization and how employees are integrated into the culture. So I'd like to see a bit more personal responsibility. And I think as a a bit more of a grandiose statement, but I think as a society, we might need to think a little bit more deeply about what kind of behavior we're looking for in our leadership. You've probably seen the Edelman Trust Barometer last year, saw this absolute collapse in public trust in leadership in general, not just in the private sector, but including the private sector with only 37% now saying they trust CEOs. So to me, that's a crisis of confidence that requires some fairly transformational thinking among much of the private sector. To kind of correlate with what you were saying earlier about compliance, you know, traditionally, particularly if you go back 10 or 15 years, culture wasn't necessarily a writ for compliance. And it certainly hasn't been a writ for your line managers. But I think your findings in your work, but also what I've seen and what I've seen with other data that's out there, shows that you just can't make a culture work if you don't have particularly line management involved in the process. It's not toned from the top anymore. I think, in fact, those of us that have been in this space and many of the people who are listening to this, when they hear tone from the top, there's, I feel like with many people, there's sort of an immediate reaction saying, oh, that's just, that's not where we are. That's not where we need to be. That we, you know, we need to really be concentrating on tone throughout the organization. And like you said, making sure that these managers have some sort of responsibility, not just for specific knowledge on specific rules or and or failures, but on the actual culture of the organization. Do you see much movement on that in your work? I have kind of a mixed impression with, with the clients that I work with, but I'm curious what you what you're seeing as far as moving the responsibility of culture down the chain of command a little bit. I think that. I would agree there are mixed results and it's a little easy to be cynical where I see the really productive and interesting conversations are, as is often the case, companies that have had a lot of reputational problems or have had a crisis and then it's often much easier to create the sense that change is needed. And maybe there's a problem with the word tone. Maybe it's something about actions at the top. I think the problem is often that the the tone does not reflect the behavior mm-hmm. and we have a situation where people feel rather cynical about the aspirations outlined in the corporate code of conduct and that they don't yes. reflect reality. And I think, you know, the other point I kind of make about leadership is even with the best intentions, you are likely to believe as a leader that your employees are able to be much more open with you about their challenges and concerns than they may in fact be able to be. One can can underestimate the effect of saying I have an open door policy and whether whether that's really believed, whether that's really seen as genuine. And so I think, you know, very often leaders may, may say something like, you know, I have an open door policy, but they also don't necessarily want the responsibility of the knowledge that that may result in them having because then they will they will need to do something about it yes. so um, <laughs> there's very often a lot of rhetoric about about wanting to know what's going on on the front front lines and, and, and behavior that's designed to drive the exact opposites 
So um, I think we need a lot more personal responsibility, but that can be uh, very personally risky for leadership. So um, I'm certainly not saying it's easy. And I think we have a, a lot more room again to drive meaningful progress here. It's an area where problems still seem to keep happening despite endless discussion and rhetoric on this subject. Yeah. And I think the perfect example of that disconnect you're talking about between the tone from the top and and what's actually going on was Wells Fargo. What I always said about that is I was perfectly willing to take uh, John Stumpf at his word and the other executives at their word that when they were sitting in the corporate offices in San Francisco, that they really felt that the culture of the organization was strong and that perhaps the perception that they had was that it was strong. You know, let's, you know, for the purposes of what happened, I, I'm willing to believe that that was their their impression. But what happened, I think, was this perverse response you were talking about where the people that were down in the branches where their immediate supervisors were telling them to do things that were clearly contrary to the code of conduct and other policies, they had to look at it very cynically, right? Because either A, the top management of the organization knows about this and doesn't care, or B, they don't know about it and why don't they know about it? And so it actually makes it possibly even worse than, than, than having them not say anything at all. Yes, and I think, you know, if you're very, very junior, let's not underestimate the the challenge of how frightening and dangerous it can be to call out unethical behavior by somebody who is senior to you and is paid more than you and has more power than you. Uh, So the middle management here are, are representing their employees to the senior management, and I don't think it's surprising that many of those employees didn't feel able to, to go over the heads of their managers and yeah. raise concerns more highly, or indeed, in some cases, they did try to raise these concerns and, and it was unsuccessful. So I think we have to be realistic about hierarchy and fears of retribution and how, how problematic that can be in terms of culture. Yeah, and that's another great point that I still find is surprisingly little understood is it's not actual retaliation that is is necessarily the issue it's the fear of retaliation it's the fear that coming forward or asking questions or, or rocking the boat so to speak is is going to have a negative impact and whether there's an actual retaliation or not is not necessarily the main inquiry because if there's fear then you're still going to be you're still going to have a culture where people aren't coming forward about misconduct and and it's just as detrimental as actual retaliation in that case absolutely thanks for listening that's the end of part one of a two-part interview we'll be back next week with allison taylor once again thanks for listening to compliance beat check out our website compliancebeat.com this podcast is brought to you by moorhead compliance consulting be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com